Well, I heard of a preacher this week who um, preached for a solid year on the parable of the prodigal son. So, don't be upset when I tell you, go back with me to the parable of the prodigal son. We've got a few more weeks in it. Um, Luke chapter 15, I'm going to read you beginning at verse uh, 11 and um, all the way through verse 24. So, follow once again as I read. From that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired, this is, the, this is the mind of God as black words on a white page. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a faraway country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that, that endures forever. Hey guys, I I am as eager as any of you to get on with this and get on to the, really the second half of the parable, which starts in verse 25 and goes to verse 32, which is the, the elder brother portion of the parable, which in, really, in a lot of ways, may be the most important part of this parable uh, to a congregation like this one. Well, what do you mean, Jimmy, a, a congregation like this one? Well, guys, I, I, I do believe that, that you will agree with me when I say um, <clears throat> we as a congregation are far more prone to be guilty of an elder brother set of sins than we are prone to be guilty of a prodigal son set of sins. We'll we'll see that, I think, when we get to the, really, the second half of the parable, but that'll that'll be a a ways away. Um, If I I were to jump on down to the, the elder brother portion, we would have to skip verses 22 to 24. And were we to skip verses 22 to 24, um, we would be missing a lot. Uh, what, what would we be missing out on? 
were we to skip those three verses? Well, there's a couple of things. The first thing I think that we would miss is a party. And, and you know how we all love, all love parties. Maybe you're exhausted. You know, this is the Sunday where people come in here exhausted. And, and maybe, maybe you're tired of parties. But if you're not, um, <clears throat> you still have one more that you can look forward to Tuesday night. And I hope you have a great time. Um, but I would suggest to you that this party that we're going to look at this morning in the parable might just change the way you view all other parties and the way that perhaps you behave at all the other parties. But even more importantly than missing out on this party that's being described here, you would also miss out on some, that is, if we were to skip verses 22 to 24, you'd, you'd miss out on some insights. Um some insights that Jesus wants you to have about the man. Now, guys, if, you, if you've been with us, uh, I think this is sermon number five, I think, in the prodigal son. But if you hear it, the first one, you'll remember that I made a big deal, a big deal out of, in sermon number one, out of telling you that this parable was not about one son, it's not about two sons. It's about the man. The parable opens up with, there was a man. Oh, the man had two sons. But the parable is about the man. And if we skip verses 22 to 20, through those three verses, 22, 23, and 24, you're going to miss out on some of the insights that we're supposed to get from Jesus about the man. The focus of this whole parable is the man. You know, guys, Jesus, we're told, in, it, we're told this in John 1, verse 18. Jesus has come to make him known. And this parable tells you a whole lot about him that you just can't miss. So, let's take a look at what there is to know about the man. Guys, I, I said to you last week that reconciliation, um, a restoration of the relationship between the father and the prodigal son, that, that took place back in verse 20. <clears throat> you remember... The, the father interrupts his son in, in mid-sentence and he preempts his son's begging for a job. The son never gets to that part, um, which really was a request that has now become irrelevant in light of the father's joy in, in, um, in this restoration. <clears throat> but there's still more. Uh, the father is not satisfied simply to have him restored. Um, the father wants to celebrate. <clears throat> nothing. Nothing is to be withheld um, in terms of 
celebrating the restoration of this boy. You, you know, several things are mentioned. A ring, which is a, a, a sign of familial authority. There's a robe, which is a sign of familial inclusion. There's shoes. <clears throat> um, slaves don't wear shoes. Sons wear shoes, but slaves don't. And then, of course, there's that fattened calf, um, which is enough, once cooked, it's enough for the whole community to, uh, to join in while they're at this party that the father is throwing. You know, guys, um, uh, guys I, in the commentaries, if you read the commentaries, uh, there's a whole lot written about what each of those things mean. The, the ring and the robe and the shoes. And, um, but, but guys, I, I want to suggest to you that the details really aren't important. It's, um, what, what's important is the grand scheme of this thing. And the, and, the, and the grand scheme is there's a party going on. There's a celebration being held. And, and when all is said and done... <clears throat> All of those things, the ring and the robe and the shoes, etc., all of that is simply a, an outward display of the Father's pleasure, of the Father's joy over the Son's return. In fact, in verse 24, he calls it a resurrection. My son was dead, but now he's alive. He, um, he says in verse 22, quickly, <clears throat> you know, they, you, can, you can hear him. He's, he's so excited. The adrenaline is pumping in his body, and, and, and he's eager to get on with this celebration. Now, what I would like for you to see this morning is what it, exactly it is, it is that we're celebrating. Um, what is the focus of this party, of this celebration? Now, gang, I, I think you're like me in this sense. You, you know, the, you're not used to this image of God throwing a party. But I want to point this out. There are, as I said, there are three parables in Luke 15. As everybody knows, there's three parables. And in all three parables, a party is thrown on the heels of the lost thing being found. A party is thrown in, in, in all three of them. When, when, the, when the lost thing is found, the finder invites all of his friends and celebrates and invites them to rejoice with him. It, it's, um, in, in all three parables, there's a focus on a party going on, a party that is thrown not by the lost thing that was found, the party was thrown by the finder. Now, again, what, what, what is this, what is exactly being celebrated in these parties? The point is, guys, the banquet, the party, is celebrating the father's successful efforts in finding and restoring um, that thing that was once dead but is now alive. Each of the three parties are thrown 
to celebrate a restoration that has been achieved at the great cost to the finder. And in this parable, it's the father. Everybody at these three parties is very excited and glad that the lost thing has been found. Yes, but way beyond that, they're impressed. They're impacted by the extremes to which the finder had to go to restore the thing that was lost. Oh, there's excitement. Yeah, you know, the sheep has come back. Yay, and the woman found her coin. but But the joy of the celebration revolves around the successful efforts. Efforts expended by the finder. Not the lost thing. Guys, in all three of these parables in Luke 15, who found whom? Um, Is this a celebration of the prodigal's successful efforts at, at reaching home through all of his arduous efforts? Not in the slightest. It is rather the celebration of a seeking, searching, saving father who, who successfully, at great expense to himself, has restored this dead child to life. Let me let me let me um, let me pride your thinking a different way. Um, let's say that you're one of the guests at the party, um, and you're going to congratulate whom? Are you are you going to go to the prodigal son and say, "Way to go, boy"? We always knew you had it in you. (laughs) Yeah, we always knew you could do it. Or will you as a guest go to the Father to congratulate the Father whose acts of restoration are breathtaking? The whole community is a buzz. Did you hear what the Father did when he saw that boy? Why, he brought out a ring and a robe and shoes and a, and a fattened calf and he threw a party. What is the community talking about, ladies and gentlemen? The efforts of the lost boy? Who do they go to congratulate? Who do they admire? Who has impacted them? Who has impressed them? You know, guys, shift gears with me just a little bit. 
for many of us, grace is not simply amazing. It's stupefying. And you've got to understand that this parable is about grace. That's what's being portrayed here, ladies and gentlemen. That God would save someone as wicked as I am. And then not only that, once he has, he throws a party because he's so so excited that he has successfully accomplished what he set out to do. But I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you read that parable. Because that's exactly what's being celebrated. Oh, the extremes to which the Father went so that he could restore a wicked son. Let me, let me, let me do it again. Let me, let me just change the, the, the analogy a bit. Think of all three of these parables. You've got the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. They're all in Luke 15. As I told you in the beginning, this is called the lost and found department of the New Testament. Luke 15 is. <laughs> but in all three of these parables, do the friends of the man who owned the hundred sheep, you know, that's parable number one. He had a hundred sheep, he lost one, and then he went out and he would not come back home until he found that sheep and brought it back. Remember that? Now, when, when the people of that party went to that party, where did they go? I mean, did they go up to the sheep and they say, hey, sheep, way to go, sheep. Boy, did you do good, sheep. Man, you're quite a sheep that you found your way back to the shepherd. Way to go, sheep. That's nonsense. How about the other one? The woman who had ten coins and she loses one of her coins and she sweeps the whole house and she won't do her other household chores until she finds the one. So you go to the party that she throws. And what do you do? Do you go up to the coin and you say, way to go, coin. Man, that was really smart. You flipping yourself out of that crack on the floor up onto the kitchen table. Do you say that? Do you see what nonsense that is? Gang, the celebration that's going on in this parable is to honor. It, it's, it's in honor of what the Father has accomplished. It's a celebration of of what the Father has accomplished to restore stupid, filthy, wayward sheep and stupid, filthy, wayward sons. All the congratulations, ladies and gentlemen, belong to the Father. None to me. 
Guys, remember, remember, I've said this, Marty said it this morning. This parable is about the man. Jesus wants you to know certain things about the man. And so, as a part of this parable, a party gets thrown. Why? So that all the people can celebrate the extremes to which the Father has gone to save the lost. Do you think anyone went up to the prodigal son and patted him on the back and said, Boy, you are special. (laughs) But let me tell you who is special. The God who found a way to restore people like us. We we stand alongside all the other guests and we marvel at what grace, at, at what the Father has accomplished. Listen. And when I begin to get that, when I begin to get the great extremes to which God has gone to save me, a party breaks out. And and not only do I begin to celebrate, but my whole behavior begins to change. I become, I become, there's such a, a wow factor to my, to my relationship with this father. We're, 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 we're all so taken with the beauty of the father who did what he did to save people like we are. And then I spend the rest of my life adoring the God who found a way at great expense to himself to save someone as undeserving as I. All of my behavior, listen ladies and gentlemen, this is huge. All of my behavior is a derivative of my grasp of grace, not my grasp of the rules. The thing that impacts me is not the beauty of the rules. The thing that impacts me is the beauty of this Father. And so my life begins to change in response to beauty. And I say along with the psalmist, salvation belongs to the Lord. God has taken the spiritually dead and made them live 
And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that is worth celebrating. You know, guys, um, the thing that made Charles Dickens such a literary genius was his creation of characters and his, his development of characters. You see it in all of his novels, but um, in, in the novel David Copperfield, some of you may have read that, you find all these people that are in there who play big and small parts of, of the overall theme of the, of the book. But one of the, the, or I guess it's two people, it's a couple in the book um, that play a, not, not a small role, they, they, but they're not, the, they're not the main characters either, are Mr. and Mrs. Bugatti. You remember them? I think her name was Clara, Clara Bugatti and Mr. Bugatti. Um, and I think I'm pronouncing it right. It's P-E-G-O-T-T-Y, Bugatti. And Mr. Bugatti, um, Mr. and Mrs. Bugatti have a niece. And their niece is little Emily. And you may recall, if you read the book, that uh, little Emily um, runs away. She's about to get married, and she didn't want to marry this guy, and so she runs away from home. And um, leaving Mr. Bugatti brokenhearted. And so Mr. Bugatti sets out to search for little Emily. And in the book, these words come out of the mouth of David Copperfield. He says, I saw how carefully he adjusted the little room, put a candle ready and the means of lighting it, and finally drew from a drawer one of her dresses which he placed upon a chair. And then Mr. Bugatti sets out to to search for what he calls his prodigal, saying or telling his friends as he left, that he would seek his darling until he died. And he would be glad to die, he says, if the news of his death would turn the heart of little Emily back towards home. There was a dress on the chair. It was his way of telling little Emily whenever she came home that everything was going to be just as it was. In our parable, it's not a little dress. It's a ring. It's a robe. It's shoes. And all three of those things say to the prodigal far more eloquently than words can tell him that his place is not to be in the servant's hall. His place is to be by his father's side. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is something worth celebrating. In this celebration, the focus is fixed not on the successes of that boy. He didn't have any successes. The achievement that that evokes such a grand celebration 
is the result it's the result of this father not the son what a great work what a great work the father has wrought in restoring to sonship this wayward boy Guys, um, I brought my picture with me one more time, and I, you know, my, my Rembrandt print one more time. And I, I, I don't know that I'm going to use it again, but, I, you know, I, I think you know by now that I was overtaken by this, this, this painting by Rembrandt. Um, but I wanted to point out one other thing that was originally the thing that really so captivated me. In, in my efforts to, to make clear um, this morning, who was to be congratulated? Uh, and I hope you get that from what I've said. But I didn't want you to forget this boy completely. Um, I, di- I didn't want you to think that there was that we had forgotten him. We haven't. But there's two things that I want to I want to do, just as observations, just as thoughts, as we close about the boy. He's not the one we're congratulating, but there's two things that I want you to think think about when it comes to this boy. Here's the first one. The the picture that you're looking at. When do you think that scene took place in the the parable? Now, by the way, this is just a Rembrandt rendering. But when do you think that scene would have taken place? Um, you know, I'm guessing. But I want to suggest to you that that scene took, takes place right after the word celebrate in verse 24. Once he hears what his father is up to, he is overcome by the reception of someone as guilty as he is. And the only natural response to seeing the great goodness of his father is to bury his head in his bosom. This is the response of all who understand something about grace. One other thing. Um, this, this moment of reconciliation, this restoration, this resurrection... In your mind's eye, what, what do you see? What do you think at once he's restored? What do you think the posture of the prodigal is? Is he grinning from ear to ear? Is he is he bouncing around the room with delight? Is he is he um, uh, winking at all the onlookers and high fiving all the guests? 
Maybe. You know, the text certainly doesn't tell us. But I can tell you the way that Rembrandt read this parable. I can tell you what Rembrandt thought in terms of what is the posture of someone who has understood, perhaps for the first time, that God is rich in grace. In the mind of Rembrandt, the only proper posture for anyone who gets a taste of grace is to bury his head in the bosom of this glorious Father. One of the preachers that I have mentioned before, um, I'm kind of a fan of. I used to read him a lot. I haven't read much of him lately. Uh, He's an Anglican, and um, his name was F.W. Borum. And um, I was introduced to F.W. Borum through um, Robbie Zacharias. Uh, Ravi mentions him several times in his books, and so I began to hunt for him and found him. And, and I've got, well, I've probably got eight volumes now of Borum sermons. But in one of his sermons, one of Borum's sermons, he tells a story. He tells a story about a Charles Wesley hymn, which many would suggest is Wesley's finest hymn. It's one we sing around here. It's called Jesus Lover of My Soul. And it's found on page 509, if you want to take a look at it. Um, I'm not going to sing it, I promise. But um, Borum tells a story about that hymn in one of his sermons. And uh, I did a little bit of research about the story, and, and I would have to suggest to you, I'm not sure this really ever happened. I think it's more of a legend than it is a, a factual story. But he says that the story came out of a newspaper article. So instead of telling the story as if it were fact, I'm simply going to, I can't tell you one thing that's a fact, he included this in one of his sermons. And so um, I'm going to read to you what Borum said about a hymn written by Charles Wesley, Jesus, lover of my soul, and in his sermon he tells this story about Charles Wesley. Got it? (laughs) I was kind of around about it, but here's the story. Mr. Charles Wesley was one day sitting by an open window of his home, enjoying the fresh spring air and the fragrant breath of the garden below. All at once, the element of tragedy disturbed the tranquility around him. His attention became focused upon the frantic flutterings of a sparrow that was attempting to elude the pursuit of a hawk. In its terror... The tiny creature darted hither and thither, always to be followed by its tormentor, the hawk. Then, just as Mr. Wesley thought that the little bird's strength was exhausted and that it must certainly succumb, it flew straight towards him and buried itself in the folds of his ample coat. Mr. Wesley, according to this newspaper cutting, was himself in circumstances of grave anxiety at the moment and fancied that he saw in the incident that had so deeply moved him a parable of his own deliverance. 
reaching for a sheet of paper, he wrote this. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me. O oh, my Savior, hide me till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O oh, receive my soul at last. My brother and sister in Christ, when we finally see our sin, when we finally see just how wicked we are, and then somebody tells us about a gospel of grace. Here's what we do. We get as close to this Father as we can get. And we stay there. Who? Who cannot possibly see the beauty of what God has wrought to save people as wicked as we? Heavenly Father, I, I do pray that you would remind us all of the extremes to which you have gone to make forgiveness available to people who deserve it not. I am one such person, O oh God. And I um, pray along with my brother and sister in Christ here that you will, um, that you will let me to thy bosom fly so that I too might bury my head in the bosom of an altogether lovely God. Father, for those you have brought here this morning who have not yet seen the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished, would you open their eyes that they might see it now? Might they see what we have seen, and we have seen it because you have granted grace for it to be so. Do that again, Lord, again and again and again that others might grasp not only their sin, but the remedy that you have provided in Christ for our sin. We ask all of it, of course, in Jesus' name.